1: It's Friday, August 21st, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington in New York, joined shortly by our
2: CEO and co-founder, Rao Powell. But first, Jack Farley with today's stories. Thanks, Ash. The European recovery is losing steam. That's according to a PMI surveys released today. The market composite reading for the Eurozone came in at 51.6, technically indicating expansion, but this figure was lower than not just the 45.9 reading in July, but from the 55 flat reading that economists and policymakers were expecting. Both French and German services readings failed to meet expectations, and while the German manufacturing PMI reading was robust, in France, the manufacturing survey stood at 49 flat. That's right, the French manufacturing sector is officially in contraction. This news hit the euro hard today, which sank over 60 bips against the dollar. In the US, the indicators were much better. The market composite PMI came in at a robust 54.7, supported by a dominant services reading of 54.8. But the headline figure that's really turning heads today is existing home sales, which came in at 5.86 million for the month of July, a monthly growth of a staggering 24.7%. It's not as if these properties are being liquidated in a fire sale. No, quite the opposite. Prices have jumped 8.5% from a year earlier. So based on these readings, there's a stark contrast between the two continents, while Europe was hit with a wake-up call today. It looks like the American dream has yet again bought itself more time. This surge in housing sales likely has two main drivers. First, professionals fleeing big cities who are buying homes in the suburbs, and the second driver is, of course, cheaper borrowing costs. This bonanza in housing has no doubt exerted upward price pressure on lumber, which is on an absolute tear. The extreme price action of lumber is something that Larry McDonald will be speaking about with RAL on Monday. They're gonna talk about commodities rising more generally as a result of monetary and fiscal stimulus, something Larry calls the cobra effect. And speaking of rising commodities, today, Bill Fleckenstein sat down with Rick Rule to tie a bow on our week-long coverage of precious metals. They put gold in a proper macro context, and they also explain the importance of jurisdictional risk. It's a great interview, so you should definitely check that one out. We do actually have another piece coming out tomorrow. During this week of our coverage of precious metals, we've talked about macro, we've talked gold and silver miners, but one thing we haven't covered as much is owning gold the old-fashioned way. So tomorrow, Raul is gonna be speaking with Mark Yaxley of Strategic Wealth Preservation about the importance of physical gold, and. What's going on in that space? Oh, and before I go, Tesla is now officially worth more than Walmart. Have a good weekend. Back to you, Ash.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-ads.com.
3: Thanks, Jack. Welcome back, Rao. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. I can't believe it's Friday already. I don't know what on earth happens to these weeks. But for me, I'm going finally leaving the little island, I'm going to Grand Cayman on Saturday for the world of wonders that is supermarkets and restaurants and things like that. So I'm actually quite excited. I'm going over for a week, I'm uh, going to see some people, going to see some of the Real Vision gang. And, uh, and then come back over here. Back
1: in the big city.
3: Yeah, exactly. It's going to be exciting crowds and everything.
1: Ralph well, I get excited when I go to the big drugstore these days. Ralph <laughs> <laughs> well, let's jump right in. I know we've got a lot to talk about. Uh, what are you looking at this afternoon?
3: Well, you know, it's been an interesting week. Um, I have been writing in uh Realvision Pro about the dollar for a long time, as many people know. And I kind of drew the line in the sand saying, listen, it looks like we've got a potential that this dollar weakness phase might reverse. And we were we had a, new, a number of technical indicators. plus the biggest short position almost in the history of the euro has happened in this in this bounce in the euro and the fall in the dollar. And there's a lot of things coming together that made me think that maybe it was time for a reversal. And this week has been about that dollar reversal, and that kind of made a lot of other markets slightly unsettled. So whether it was the gold market, some of parts of the equity markets, you know some of the foreign equity markets. So you know the dollar is the big factor always at play. It's the daddy of all macro things. So it's very important what it does from here, if the dollar sharpens quickly because of the sheer size of the positions of the other way around, well, that could increase volatility, and you know I have a feeling that we're going to have a volatility soon. Um, in the next, you know, two to three weeks, we're going to start to see some significant volatility in the equity markets as the breadth in this equity market is getting less and less and less. The dollar may be strengthening. We've got that period of no stimulus. There's plenty of uncertainty around. We've got more issues in Europe as yet as we know with COVID. So. You know, I, I think it's getting close to another event. What magnitude that is, I have no idea. But you know, let's let's watch this. But the dollar is always something people should keep on their screens because they don't really understand it. Currency is a kind of a weird concept, but it's the driver of almost all asset prices.
1: Yeah, and uh, as we go into uh, filming here, dollar index DXY at about 93.2. You know, I read your macro insider's note on the dollar. You talked about the pain in the long dollar trade, but you also mentioned something that I thought was really interesting, which is how the evidence coming out of emerging markets is actually disconfirming of that. That's a really interesting point.
3: Yes. So I always like to not just look at the headline and certainly don't listen to what everybody tells you on Twitter. You know, the dollar's been collapsed, it's got to be a hyper... But you know, all of the bullshit that comes out. Do your own homework always. So what I do is, I pick up the chart of the DXY. Now, the DXY is mainly euros, and there's a bit of yen, a bit of pounds, a bit of Aussie, stuff like that. There's a, it's a small basket of stuff. So firstly, look at those constituents. And yes, the Aussie's been strong, the pound's been pretty strong, and the euro. But then when you look at the emerging markets, and I look at the JP Morgan emerging markets currency index, it's not doing the same thing at all. In fact, it's starting to weaken. So there's this divergence between EM and DM that gets me to think, huh, that's interesting. You know, Why is that? And what is it telling us? It's much like, you know, we talked last week and, and in a few weeks now about I'm watching the banks weakening and the stock market going up. I'm like, huh, that's not normal, not to this magnitude. And we, we had weak banks again all week this week, they haven't quite broken down yet. But it's very close. So that made me look again, okay, what's going on in the emerging markets? And and you can see currencies like the Brazilian real are starting to weaken. Now, these are countries with low growths and high debts. That's the solvency issue that I've been talking about. Countries who find it more difficult to service their debts. And the big one from this week was Turkey. Yeah, so, you mentioned Turkey, and it's interesting because it's something that I don't know much about. Yeah, so Turkey is running, you know. Huge current account deficits. It's, um, it has basically run out of dollars. So they've been doing everything to stop money flowing out of the country. And it got very, very close two days ago to completely breaking out. So if we get above like 740, 745 in the lira, we could see another huge dollar lira rise, i.e., the lira falling sharply. As capital starts leaving the country, because there's there's no sh- dollars available for for Turks and the Turkish banking system. Now, that's interesting because generally emerging market volatility tends to be contagious. So if Turkey weakens, South Africa is going to weaken. If South Africa weakens, Brazil is going to weaken. if Brazil weakens Argentina is going to weaken. So that's what we're picking up in the charts that there's the solvency issues or and the dollar shortage issue in these emerging markets is going to create or can be creating some problems. The chart alone of the Turkish lira and the Brazilian real look really concerning. But what's really interesting about it as well is this week has been you know, right bang on time just as soon as we have precious metals week, gold corrects and silver corrects. Now, why was that? Sure, they're overbought, they've come a long way very quickly. But you need to understand what's going on with Turkey. So Erdogan has tried to stop Turks um, buying gold.
0: Mm.
3: He asked people, forced people to try and convert their gold back to lira because they needed the money. Now, yesterday, the lira strengthened and that weakened um, gold again. And what that was about was Erdogan basically... I think probably making up a story that they've got this massive natural, natural gas find enough to close the trade deficit of Turkey. So he releases that just when the Turkish lira is about to break down. So it's like, no, don't worry. It's all going to be okay. We're rescued by a natural gas find. And then gold sells off because money goes back into the lira. But there is a very high correlation between these things. And even more importantly, with cryptocurrencies. So I didn't know this because one of our Real Vision subscribers started pointing this out to me, and then somebody else on Twitter said, "Oh, did you know that the Turkish national football team is sponsored by a Bitcoin exchange?" <laughs> so Bitcoin is very well used in Turkey. Why? Because it's the only non-manipulated form of capital flight. So if they want to sidestep the system, Bitcoin is their answer. Yeah. So you have seen some real strength in Bitcoin whenever the Turkish lira weakens. And it is because Turks are trying to avoid the currency weakness by flipping out into Bitcoin, letting the currency weaken, and then repatriating capital should they need it because they are not leaving the country. So it is not like it is the super rich leaving. It is just people using Bitcoin to circumvent falls in the lira. So it's like really interesting. They're using gold, but gold has been stopped. So there's been an argument over time is like, well, governments are going to regulate Bitcoin and therefore you want gold. Well, here goes the opposite going on. They're regulating gold and people are using Bitcoin as the escape valve. So I think that's pretty interesting. There was also stories uh, this week about $50 billion leaving China in the same kind of capital flight thing. So uh, everyone should just keep an eye on this. It's a story that's quietly... Whispering beneath the surface, that emerging markets aren't good. Solvency issues are at hand, and money wants to find a safer home. So, you know that 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 I think has been a very interesting development. Raul, you read my mind.
1: I was thinking that uh, you know, as you were talking about Turkey, which I don't know much about, the price action. Of Bitcoin earlier in the week, we ran up above twelve thousand. We're at about eleven thousand seven hundred now at the time of taping. This is a bit of a run that Bitcoin has gone on. It started uh, since May. Uh, It was relatively flat for about uh, for about two and a half months, uh, and then started to run up. So it's an interesting story and one that I'm going to keep more of an eye on in the future.
3: Well, if you look at the Turkish lira chart, well, in June, July, beginning of August, it was relatively flat, and then the Turkish lira moved very sharply. As Bitcoin moved very sharply, you know. Don't forget, prices move because there's buyers or sellers. In yeah. this case, it's clear to identify who one of the marginal buyers are, and it's always buying at the margin makes the difference. It's unlikely to be the the regular flows. It's usually somebody else in the equation, and in this case, it's the Turks. And yeah. that's I love the way because it's the connection of global capital flows. It's the, it's the it's the clear use case of this new digital currency. And the use of gold, because they're all tied up in the same thing, just very, very interesting. so we, we we need to watch how that story develops. My guess is they really don't want to let that peg fully break and the currency get smashed, but I'm not sure they can stop it. But you know there's probably a bit of a fight in the Turkish authorities before they let it go.
1: Yeah, and it is really interesting when you talk about the call about potentially regulating Bitcoin. The reality is, Bitcoin is much tougher to regulate than gold, especially with the rise of decentralized exchanges.
3: It is, it is. Now, it is trackable, but you need somebody like the FBI to do that. You know, it, it's difficult for most countries to be able to track. You know, who's got the Bitcoin? to Do all the math- massive computing to figure out to trace it, all yeah. of that stuff. So, yes, I mean, it, it serves that purpose pretty well. And you know, I, again, I wrote about it in the piece that I wrote today. Yes, uh, published today in Macron Siders, I wrote a whole piece about Bitcoin. and I'm not going to bore everybody with why I'm so bullish on Bitcoin. But, um. But I go through in detail, you know, some of these arguments about capital, uh, about capital restrictions and, you know, regulating Bitcoin and, and why they're going to bat, you know, why, you know, banning it's not going to work because you've got jurisdictional arbitrage. And in something like this. Somebody else will just offer you the opportunity to do it. Yeah. It's money, after all, right? So people want it. It's, it's, we've even seen it with stem cell research. or you know, All of these things is you may regulate it in one country, but somebody will open it, will we'll welcome you with open arms somewhere else.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's also a distinction to be made between, you know, the intense investigative scrutiny that can be applied to a single bad actor if you know that there are certain wallet addresses associated with it versus surveillance at scale and trying to stop Uh, An entire country from hedging currency risk using Bitcoin, a much trickier proposition. Also,
3: if Bitcoin was so traceable, why the hell don't we know who Satoshi Nakamoto is? (laughs) It's a great question. (laughs) If we can't find that simple thing out, well, there is a layer of security within Bitcoin that is pretty powerful.
1: Yeah, I mean the you know, the reality is that the way that these are traced by law enforcement is when they are converted back and forth into US dollars because then there's a, a traceable event, you get suspicious activities reports and those kinds of things. But you know, as you say, with Satoshi in the beginning, very hard to know when it's created ex Nilo. Yeah, exactly. So, you yeah, know, always fascinating. Always fascinating. Infinitely fascinating for you and me for sure. Uh, Raoul, we also talked a little bit earlier about some of the charts that you found at tracktherecovery.org
3: Yeah. Again, listen. You know, I move forward this narrative every week, and the narrative is growth is not picking up. Growth has it's kind of an inverse square, a, a kind of mirrored square root. You know, growth growth came up from the low. It stopped most way around the world between minus five and minus seven percent year on year, and it's staying there. In fact, interestingly enough. In the United States and Europe now, it's falling again. So growth is now weakening, um, and there's a tracktherecovery.org, which I think is from Harvard, um, and it's super interesting to see some of the um, charts of that. You know, the one I particularly focus on is the small business revenues, because again, that is pure expression of the solvency idea. Is if all their revenues are going down again. For me, it's the, I've explained this a few times, is we're used to recessions that go down and go up. Right. If you go down, up, and then trade sideways for nine months and then start to recover, the problem is, is everyone runs out of cash. And this is the solvency issue I keep referring to. And that small business revenues, it's heartbreaking because you know they don't have the Federal Reserve helping them really. They haven't doled out all of the PPP loans they should have done anyway. And small businesses are in trouble here. And it's it's going to be very, very painful.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's difficult. And the data is fascinating to watch. A- exactly as you said, it's a joint uh, cooperation, I think, between Harvard and Brown University here in the US. But exactly as you say, Rao, when you look at that chart, what you see is a V with the second uh, terminal point not reaching the first then it goes sideways, and then it rolls over. And uh, the fascinating thing is if you look at a second chart on the, on the track the recovery, it's the small business opening chart, and it's exactly the same pattern, no surprise, as what you would see uh, on the revenue chart. So it's a really interesting and difficult time for a lot of small business people, a tremendous amount of uncertainty, difficulty accessing government programs and capital. If you're a small business, you don't have a fleet of lawyers and accountants uh, doing your bidding to help you figure this stuff out. It's a challenging time.
3: Yes, and the longer it goes on for, the harder it is. And that's against the backdrop that we talked about last week of no stimulus. I mean, there is a big war going on between the Trump administration and the Democrats about mail-in voting. and It's a very big deal, and so the Democrats, for the higher probability of winning an election, will fight for that and may take some pain in terms of not approving packages. Um, and The Trump side don't want to approve it, because obviously, it lowers their chance of winning an election. And they will take some pain. So, in the middle is the average guy getting caught out. Now, maybe in the long run, there's a good solution. You know, may- maybe something good comes of this. But right now, there is no stimulus, and the Fed aren't really at play either. So, we're, again, we're at a very precarious point. And I've been saying this for a period of time. I've been expecting this. We're starting to see it in the bank share prices. You know, we're starting to see it now in the data. The the, the data you're showing that things are not good, and I, I think it's going to continue that way until the election now. so I, If the economy is going to do something surprising, it's going to underperform people's expectations at this point, because almost everybody's expectations is a gradual return to normality. The worst would be the W. I don't think we can have a full W because the first part was so deep, but can we roll over, go down again, get down to you know negative? Eight or nine percent GDP, and then bounce from there, you know, year on year terms. Yeah, we probably could, and that's catastrophic. Again, people do not understand because they're so they listen to so much of the bullshit around them about yeah, we're a recovery. Negative five percent GDP year on year is the worst recession since the Great Depression, and we're stuck in that right now. And Europe has started closing down again. I mean, Spain's got a big problem on its hands, so. They're going to see the same thing, and we saw it in the PMI data coming out of Europe today. It's starting to weaken. Now, again, play through. Now, go back to the dollar story I was talking about, and again, I've talked about this with you a couple of times. Is okay. Let's just be live in the future a little bit, which is what my job is in macro—to live in the future. So let's say European growth does continue to stall. Everyone's just closed their summer holidays now. I mean, uh, my mother's in in the beach town in Spain where I used to live, and she says there's only Spanish tourists no foreign tourists anymore. So GDP growth in all of these countries is going to slow. Okay, so how do they stimulate? Well, they don't have any money to stimulate. The banks are a mess. So they have to go to the ECB. But the ECB won't do it on a country by country level because of the Maastricht criteria. So they have to do it in this new mechanism. Right. But they barely got through this 850 billion in the new mutualized mechanism, if they go cap in hand three months later say, oh, we need another 850 billion, the kind of frugal four just not going to approve it. So the marginal propensity or marginal probability of new stimulus coming in Europe this year has diminished massively. The market hasn't figured that out. So again, I keep saying it keep your eye on the European banks. Um, they're slowly drifting back down again. It doesn't look good. Look at the chart of the IBEX, the IBEX, the Spanish stock market. Again, it looks like it could start breaking down from here and the euro starting to flip flop around at the top of the range. So there's a story developing here that's one of slowing growth. And that chart basically represents it globally. It's the same everywhere, including in China.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.
1: Yeah, very interesting. You and I, of course, talked about European banks last week. Ed and I have been talking about it on RVDB. It's definitely something to watch. You know, I was struck when you talked about. The potential for a W-shaped recovery. Nuriel Rubini out today uh, with a call for officially for a W-shaped recovery.
3: Interesting. As I said, it'll be a lopsided W because we can't have a, you know, a quarter. Ne- it's not going to be a negative negative thirty-two percent quarter again, right? We're just not going to see that in year-on-year terms. But, but something deeper than we are now. That's what that chart is showing you. Is I don't know what's going to stop that momentum what is going to stop the momentum of that when there's no stimulus and Europe's slowing down and the rest of the world is slow including Japan so there's no there's no engine in the world growth right now and yeah. there's no stimulus so you know the markets don't care at the headline level but as i said you know and i've been mulling this over and i keep sitting on my hands but at some point i just want to buy some put spreads in the S&P or something as a protection because it feels that there is a big air pocket building here, and it's yeah. a bit of a wily coyote moment. That you know, the wily coyote when he jump, when he always runs off the end of the canyon, and then it, he's in midair. And <laughs> yeah. Then...
1: yeah, I mean uh, that is sort of the sensation, which brings us, uh, you know, to the day's close on U.S. equity markets. Look, S and P five hundred closing at thirty three ninety seven today, above
3: uh, the uh, intraday high from uh, from from February. Uh, Here's something interesting: is Mike Green. Tweeted out an interesting chart today. Um, you know he's always a great follow on Twitter. And look, his hypothesis has been as most Real Vision um, members will know about is that the 401k flows, particularly from the millennials, tend to be skewed towards index funds. Yeah, and they're the marginal buyer because the baby boomers are generally divesting themselves of assets and tend to hold active portfolios as opposed to passive. Millennials are all passive, right? Really. Um, And he showed the job losses hasn't hit those people with 401ks as much as others. So the 401k flows are still going on. Let's see what happens now these stimulus has come off, because I'm not sure that those jobs will stay. But I think that is the function. That's why the breadth is getting narrower and narrower. It's basically indexation that's causing the problem. And indexation is causing the problem, I think, with Tesla as well because you know Tesla's likely to go to the S&P 500 it'll go in as the largest ever addition to the S&P 500 that leads to billions of dollars of purchasing problem is is once that's done i've seen this trade many times before index inclusion trades the best thing to do is short them on the on the inclusion mm. um, and so you know there's a lot of mechanisms going on that 401k flows is interesting
1: so so much there, Rao, that you just said, yet yeah, Mike Green has been uh, so far ahead of the curve on the risks uh, and uh, market structure changes caused by passive indexation. Uh, it's an incredibly interesting topic. Also of course on long vol, which is related to that point, You know, talking again about the two worlds that we saw, another chart uh, from tracktherecovery.org that I found particularly compelling is a chart that basically confirms what we've been saying. It's the recession uh, has nearly ended for high wage workers. But losses persist for low-wage workers. It shows this sort of tale of two Americas that we've been talking about. Well, it's in the share prices
3: as well. You know, yeah. the high-paid workers—they work for Google or the investment banks who've done quite well. Yeah. Or you know, wherever it may be, the low-paid workers. Guess what? They work in all of the th- businesses that you showed the original chart of that are closing. That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> you know, and that's the, That's the problem here is. Is an event like this increases the rich poor divide? I mean, recessions usually have the same, right? So, high paid workers are the most skilled workers and they tend to be laid off less. That's just a fact of life. That's why people take the the speculative gamble on getting a master's degree. You know, maybe it's going to make me more skilled worker, therefore, I get a higher return on my career over time. Right. But, um, but almost always in recessions, the low paid workers get fired first because the weakest companies go, et cetera, et etc, et cetera. But in this one, because it's a consumer led recession as well, you know particularly at the high street level, you know main streets, you know the you know you and your in fact i want want you to talk me through what's going on in New York, but so many small businesses have closed, and I'm not sure how and when those jobs come back, yeah. So what is it like there? Because you know, I'm on a small island. So we've got no difference here. I can't tell anything. Cause there's only 140 people. Yeah. Uh, you know, some people, you know, we actually um, created a small fund for some of the people who were stuck on Ireland that didn't have work, so we can get them food and stuff like that. But nobody's, nobody's supremely poor or in trouble, but, but they had no income to buy stuff. So right. but around you, my guess is there's what, boarded up sh- shops and empty places? I mean, wh- what is it like?
1: You know, It's a really interesting question, Raoul, because it's something that I've been talking about for the last week with my friends here in town. One of the things that we've seen, and I've never seen anything like this in New York before, is there's this weird bifurcation. Actually, bifurcation probably isn't the right word. It's almost balkanization. There's this weird neighborhood-by-neighborhood-like feel about it. I'm on the Upper East Side. Things here uh, actually feel quite... uh, Re- relatively normal. There's activity. There are people at cafes. There are people outdoors uh, drinking and having a calamari at an outdoor table. The wine shops are open. Uh, the neighborhoods in New York that have struggled the most, neighborhoods that suffer from high crime, uh, have been really significantly impaired by this. There's a lot more. Uh, there's a lot. What are more- those?
3: The more marginal neighborhoods? Is that where the problem? Is it the same thing? Because the Upper East Side tends to be a wealthier neighborhood. Yes. So the the more marginal neighbourhoods have been crushed because that's where all the marginal workers work, who that's work right. in the small bodegas and all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, that's and and you know also some of this is uh, is the uh, some of the challenges we've had obviously uh, in the wake of the George Floyd uh, tragedy uh, that police are in a feeling in a very difficult position about enforcing the law. Uh, and, uh, and there's a lot of uh, tension around this, a lot of political argument around this, as everything is uh, during an election year especially. But there's also a very strange effect that uh, I've seen that people have been posting. This is a topic that's been on my Facebook. Make of this what you will. But the Upper West Side, which is directly across Central Park from me, also a very wealthy uh, upper middle class uh, community, uh, lots of stores and shops and cafes, seems to be really struggling. They seem to have experienced a lot of people moving out their stores are much more boarded up. So it's a very strange situation. I don't know quite what to make
3: of it, to be honest with you. Huh, fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating, yeah. There has been a lot of talk about the the kind of death of New York. Yeah. Look, it's possible because America's seen some big cities hold out entirely. You know, Detroit being the classic example and Philly being one of the, you know, another one and stuff like that. But I kind of, you know, New York's New York. And I kind of think, we spent a long time complaining how expensive it was for young people to live there. Because when you're young, to live and work in New York gives you the best opportunity. Yeah. And then when you get older, only the rich can afford to live there. Because you know if you want to have any size of, of place to live in, because you've got family and stuff, it's, yeah. you have to be rich. Yeah. So it has this, this thing. But what happened was the, the young people first went to Brooklyn and, and elsewhere, and then started moving out. Because it just became impossibly expensive. Yeah. Also, it became blander. Because if I remember New York of the early uh, early nineties, there was a lot more independent retailers, kind of funky stuff. It was a bit more artsy. It was a bit grittier. And it was like it was like the the kind of the New York that I loved. And then it became full of investment bankers wearing khakis and and uh, wearing those um, those sleeveless vests, and everybody looked identical. And that that was the worst phase of New York, and that was in about 2010, yeah. two, 2000, 2005 to 2010, and then obviously the bankers started getting tipped out of jobs, and it started shifting a little bit and getting a bit better again. But because of foreigners piling capital in, it became because of the strong dollar, it became incredibly expensive. So yeah. maybe at the end of all of this, we can go back to, and I've seen this in Japan. Is Japan that had similar demographic issues and long ongoing recessions and stuff? You see a lot more artisan stuff, a lot more funky, cool stuff, because people left jobs and decided to be slightly more entrepreneurial, but on school, small scale entrepreneurs. So I'm, I kind of, am excited to see where New York could be. You know, do you get a music scene back that's a bit more exciting? Do you get, you know, that kind of social movement again because you can have Less well off, more creative, more artistic people back into the city?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Maybe we bumped into each other down at an after hours club on the Lower East Side sometime in the late 90s, Rob. We never know.
3: You never know. You never know.
1: <laughs> we should get James Altucher on. Who is the gentleman who wrote that piece that got such buzz and pickup? Investor blogger analyst uh, called. I think it's New York is dying and it's not coming back. It's really touched off a lot of debate here. It is a really strange feeling. It's a strange time. Uh, and it, you know, this is the challenge when you start with the data, right? There's not a thesis. We don't have a thesis. We just look at the data and say these are things that are happening that are kind of weird. Uh, and that's the sort of the early warning sign when you when you look at things through that lens.
3: Yeah, that's right. But yeah, let's see how these cities um, regenerate, and I th- they will. You know, I was speaking to um, um, one of the kind of virus experts and vaccine experts, and look, you know, the vaccine's coming, whatever shape or form. You know, whether it'll be one that's only has some efficacy rate that's lower than expected, blah 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 blah. But you know, chances are by next summer, you know, a vaccine's pretty much rolled out. Whether people take vaccines or not is a different issue. Uh, and how safe the first versions are, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, all of this will go away, it too shall pass. The question is, is okay. what is the, the opportunity set after that? And that is why I think this election is a really interesting one, because we have a bifurcation that is going to happen. Both are going to do extreme fiscal stimulus, which is one of the reasons many of us are bullish on Bitcoin and gold. So there is extreme fiscal stimulus to come because we have got this mess. And that chart that you showed shows the mess is not going away. Okay, so this all plays into the macro thesis. So, okay, Biden did a pretty good good job last night. He didn't talk any policies; he just talked in sentiment, right? right. So that's a way of encapsulating as broad a number of people as possible. So we, there's a fight here going into the election. Who's going to win? We don't know, but the the only way Biden can have the chance is to is to put his arms around the progressives and also the the more centrist of the party too. You needs to put yeah. and even some Republicans. So he has to put his arm around really big. So to do that, you have to have some sort of inspirational plan which is going to be fiscal stimulus. Yeah. And it'll be based around with them probably around the new Green Deal, which is AOC's kind of push with Bernie. Um, there's going to be Spending on infrastructure,
2: mm-hmm.
3: 5G. There's going to be spending on bridges and roads and stuff like that, as was pointed out, because that employs uh, blue-collar workers. So that is one fiscal stimulus. On the Trump side, if Trump gets voted back in, it's going to be a second a fiscal stimulus going to elsewhere. I mean, the cynical would say it's the fiscal stimulus for the billionaires again, mm. but I think also there will be, you know, certain types of industries, car industry. You know, coal industry, and you know, okay, some of these are part of his cronies as well, um, and that's the kind of system we're in. But, but we will see different industries get stimulated. Stimulated. So, for investors, it's really difficult to know what to do right now, because we've got this big thing happening in November, and after that, it's going to be two different paths, yeah. and your investments are going to be related to that. Yeah. Well, you know, let's talk
1: about that. You you pointed this out I think very eloquently earlier. You know, you basically said, look, Joe Biden, a very likable guy, fundamentally decent man. He's obviously in control and in command of the facts. He seemed very strong. But light on policy specifics last night, I think it's fair to say. Uh, when you look through the actual details of the policy, and I was up on TaxPolicyFoundation.org, which has an excellent website uh, that details this, look, here are the bullet points. Raising corporate imp- income tax from 21% to 28%, imposing a 15% minimum book tax on corporations with $100 million or greater. In income, doubling the tax rate on global intangible low income tax, the guilty earned by foreign companies, imposing 12.4% Social Security payroll tax on wage and self employment above $400,000, repealing tax cuts from the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, taxing capital gains on ordinary income up from 23.8% for those earning over $1 million, and capping the itemized deductions to 28% for those in higher marginal tax brackets. That obviously. is something that is going to uh, to be contractionary by
3: definition. Here's another interesting. I have not even thought about this, but hearing you read out the list, I'm thinking, huh, they might pay for more of the stimulus than I thought. Hmm. And that made me think, well, if that's the case, the bloody dollars going up fast. If Biden gets voted in, hmm. I thought I hadn't thought about that before. I was just because I was like, wow, okay, that's a lot of taxes. Yeah. We know that, that, that that's been the agenda. Just an interesting thought that yeah. maybe, I mean, the dollar has been correlated to Trump. So as Trump's done well in the polls, he's been tends to be strong dollar because of his globalization policies. But you know, maybe there's something different here. Maybe Trump becomes the weak dollar person because the stimulus won't be backed by taxes. So it's more MMT in its approach. Well, maybe the Democrats are the opposite. And they are actually funding more of it, which nobody would have thought of. So anyway, it's just a random it's, thought. I've not thought it through, but
1: it's the Freaky Friday election.
3: <laughs> yeah, imagine that.
1: That's right. Well, look, you know, my guess is it's probably going to be more than offset by spending.
3: Of course, it will be.
1: Yeah.
3: But the question is, is at what level? Yeah, because again, the market's job is to look at you know different outcomes and you know how bad or how good they are, depending. You know, and I've talked about this before. The probability of the tech stocks holding up in a Democrat victory is very low because of taxation, because they basically don't pay any tax, any of them. So it's taxation and regulation. Yeah. Okay, that's the killer blow for those. Um, Different parts of the economy will do extremely well. And again, just because the flow of funds goes to different places. and, And that's fine. You know, our job as investors is to not care who's voted in, that's politics. Right. But as investors, we need to deal with what's given to us, which is whoever's voted in. How do I make money from this, or how do I protect my money from this? And people have to not confuse their own politics with their investment philosophy. And people do it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, boy,
1: we could write that in bold letters on top of every video we've run for the last uh, 90 days.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it, it it is very very crucial that people understand that is. You may. Hate the Democrats and taxes, or you may hate the Republicans and whatever. Nobody cares who you like or hate. Do that at the ballot box, but when it comes to investing, your ballot counts for nothing. What counts is who wins, Um, and how how that moves markets.
1: And I think that's you know very much an articulation of the philosophy that we have here at Real Vision and how we're going to be thinking about this election. Going forward, Democrats and Republicans both buy stock. They both buy other asset classes. We're looking to figure out a way to cover this in a balanced way that takes into account the analytic component of what you just.
3: If our mission is to democratize the the very best financial intelligence, it doesn't come with a parenthesis that says, "Oh, if you're a Republican only, right, <laughs> right, or if you're a Democrat, or if you're a libertarian." You know, I don't care what anybody's politics are, and it shouldn't. Play a big part. Yes, politics has some role in understanding investments in terms of it matters who's in and what policies they put through. But our views on them make no difference because the stock market's not voting on politics, it's voting on economics.
1: Yeah, very well said. Final question for you, Rao What's your guess uh, for the term of art that we're going to use to describe the new shape? Of the recovery. Last time Nuriel was here, he called it an I straight down. My guess is asymmetric W.
3: I think that's a good term of art. I think asymmetric W. I saw somebody refer to it as a a mirrored square root sign. So it goes yeah. down like that and then across. But that across bit, I mean, you've shown it today, is kind of getting a bit weak to be that. That's so right. So I think a kind of a weird lopsided W. I think. Lopsided like W. That looks like what it's going to be. So, but what that means, you know, again, people are like, well, why do you keep labeling it? The most important thing is how long it takes to get back to recovery. Right. And when you've got a W, you're basically extending the time of not going above zero. And if you don't go above zero, that's the more days businesses who have high debts or high costs don't generate enough revenue to pay them. Yeah, this is a critical point. A critical point. The longer we go sideways,
1: uh, the longer those you know these businesses uh, that are ocu- operating here in New York City, for example, at fifty percent occupancy rate, some of the outdoor cafes, it's really impossible to cover the monthly bills at a fifty percent occupancy rate. You probably have to be closer to ninety.
3: Yeah, I mean, my wife's business, and she's in the in the um, healthcare business. I mean, through lockdown, because they, she treats kids with autism, it's almost impossible for. Um, them to treat kids so they reopened and you know did it in a social distance way et etc et etc in a phased approach but she got down to negative cash and really speaking another month or two and there was a bunch of kids with autism we get nobody looking after them you know so you know um applied behavioral analysis for all these kids is is crucial for their development in early stage yeah but what have gone and that's happening everywhere Because after a period of time, everybody's cash buffer's gone. Your landlord's not going to, you know, to forego rent any longer. Your suppliers are not going to forego, and then it's game over.
1: Yeah, that's 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 an important point. The longer these things go on, even if they don't worsen, the worse things get. The balance sheets get eroded.
3: Exactly, exactly. Because when it's negative year on year, it's a net drain. Always, every day is less money in the till. Yeah, people don't understand this, but this is the, this is the issue.
1: The, the the air is coming out of the tires. The buffer is being eroded day after day after day. Yeah, exactly right. Rao, this could be our first three-hour RVDB if we wanted. I think, but uh, <laughs> we've got to let everyone get home to hang out with their families. Thanks again for joining us.
3: Uh, good to be here, and I'm looking forward to going to the big city. I'm probably going to be freaked out by seeing people, things like that. You know, I'm not ha- the largest crowd I had is there's a bar called the Hungry Iguana here, the Iggy. It's the only bar, really. And uh, there was uh, a couple of friends have a live band, and they're, I don't want to let them know, but they're terrible, but it was still fun. And there was maybe 60 people in the bar because a lot of people have come over from Grand Cayman because they've opened the inter-island flights. And I was at first I was like, "Bloody hell, who are these people? I don't want to go near them." You know, took me a few rum and rum and cokes, and then I was fine. But uh, yeah, it'll be interesting going to the big smoke. This would be great. Can you get some video footage of you uh,
1: mingling amongst the locals? (laughs) All right, Raoul. I'm I'm sure the uh, stingrays are not social distancing. I'm sure they're not.
3: (laughs) Thanks for joining us again. All right. Cheers. Have a great weekend, everyone.